Hello and uh, welcome to episode three of the Priced Out podcast. Today we are joined by my co-host Ruben Young. Hello. Director of Priced Out and our special guest today, Professor Christine Whitehead. Um, Professor Christine Whitehead is an internationally famed applied economist working Mm -hmm. mainly in the fields of housing economics, finance and housing policy. Today we're going to be looking at the new book that has been released recently by Professor Christine Whitehead and Professor Jeff Mean called Understanding Affordability, the Economics of Housing Markets. We'll be looking at today the disagreement between the belief that there is an absolute shortage of homes and the solution to which is building more, as well as those who think it's more of a distributional problem arising from the housing as an asset, particularly in the period of low yields, expanding mortgage markets and the tax advantages enjoyed by homeowners. The argument in the book is that there is these can be both factor. Christine, is housing unaffordable? For some people, it's unaffordable. But for an economist, if you're managing to pay, you are paying. And therefore, in some sense, it's affordable. But I think it's an you know, important distinction in the, in the UK system, which most other countries have no understanding of what the hell we're trying to do. But we use unaffordable in some sort of very general sense. The economists are always saying, well, you pay it, so who cares? While the politicians and and the planners are talking about affordable housing, which is fundamentally a set of policies, not a set of affordabilities. I would argue that uh, it is affordable if A, you wish to, and B, which is important, A, you wish to pay what you're paying, and secondly, you can afford the necessities of life in addition to housing yeah doesn't do those two things it's not affordable yes um and to unpick that a bit i guess there's a lot of different ways affordability can be defined um at priced out we that our primary uh, concern is stopping house prices from increasing because they've gone too far but obviously that's looking at a specifically a lifetime affordability for one particular tenure and of course it's a lot um, messier than, than that, for example, you could argue that you can afford home ownership if you can get a 95% mortgage, um, uh, which you can afford on day one. Uh, you could uh, you could argue that the private rental sector is a, a is more of what we should should be concerned about when we're talking about affordability. How do you how is it defined in your book? Well, I think we we define it in in different ways in relationship to whether we're talking about affordable housing or whether we're talking about affordability. I think that. I personally, the the bits which I wrote are more about the interface with policy and I would do it in relationship to what was the basis of our welfare system from 1945 onwards, that it should be a residual income approach, which says that what is left after housing is enough to pay for the basic necessities of life. But I think that in the context of home ownership, we've got this very specific thing that uh, everybody believes that they understand price income ratios and that's what it's all about. So if the, if the price has gone up more than the income, then it's become more unaffordable. But as, as Jeff very carefully points out, if you take price income ratios, they've gone terrible over the last 10, 15 years. If you take actual repayments, they haven't changed over those periods. So every time the government says price income ratios have gone up and everything is terrible, we obviously need more housing. 
you're actually saying, well, you know, interest rates have actually gone down. The reason why house prices have gone up so much is that asset adjustment. And uh, you aren't actually paying much more because you can't actually afford to pay that much more. Yes, people are excluded, but it's a very different, uh, the story is very different from the, the simple one. And, and you look into the use of something called a Lorenz curve and Gini coefficients. And in the book, I think you look at the Southeast and overlay the income onto the affordability criteria. And then you also look at the Northeast. And it seems to conclude that for some people, you know, even in the lower income brackets, housing still out of reach. Are you able to sort of describe to us what the use of a Lorenz curve is? Because when I've checked Hansard, it hasn't been said at all in, in Parliament in the last 10 years at least. Well, it's just fundamentally an income distribution and whether the income distribution has been getting more even or more uneven. And what we know very clearly is that our income distribution has been getting more uneven. And therefore, the people who got higher incomes are more able to compete in the market than the people with lower incomes, and that pressure has increased. It's increased in Britain, it's increased in Germany, it's increased in Sweden, ones I looked at lately. And so most countries, what is happening is that it's much easier for those who are on median and above incomes to, to get into the market and to, and to consume more housing than it is for the lower income and this situation is worsening. So, so, so what causes the affordability problem? Is it just supply or primarily an issue of distribution in your mind? Well, it's certainly not just supply because uh, how, it, but it's significantly about how you use that supply. And that is defined in part by distribution of income because what dominates in terms of how much housing we consume is our income and our wealth and our expectations of income into the future. So we know that in Britain we have relatively high income elasticity. That is to say that if you get any pound of additional income, you spend proportionately more of that pound on housing. So if you were spending 10% of your income, your income goes up, it, your, the proportion you spend will go on housing will go up. Is, is part of that just because of a feature of the system that because of the kind of market we have, in a sense, because supply hasn't been able to respond to demand going up, it is a necessity, one could argue, that when, in, when your income increases, it must go into housing because that will just enable landlords or sellers of homes to charge more, no? Yeah, I mean, the income elasticity is a straightforward real income elasticity. So it's what I choose to spend that extra pound on. Mm. And I choose to spend it disproportionately on housing because housing is seen as two things, one a necessity and one a, one a, a luxury good. And I choose to spend more. Now, why do we spend that elasticity is much higher in Britain than, for instance, it is in Germany? And the question about uh, why that is the case is partly to do with what you just said, Ruben, but uh, it's to do with expectations that I make my money out of it or that it's my, the way that I can invest into my pension and 
it for many people it is the only thing which they can can easily access. They don't want to access shares which are terrifying. <laughs> they don't want to access bonds which have got no money in them. So Ruben, what, what, what do you think the demand side factors are to determine the number of new homes built? And I'd be interested to hear what, what Christine's thoughts are too. So the, the demand side factors that determines the new homes built as opposed to affordability. Um, well, we, we live in a system where unfortunately, because planning is so constrained and developable land is so constrained, that developers will tend to only build in a rising market, which is unfortunate. And I think reforming planning could help with that. But in terms of other stuff, I mean, like Christine says, if you have more money to spend on housing, in theory, that should mean that it's a very attractive proposition for developers. So suddenly developers build a lot more homes, but that hasn't happened. And I'd argue a lot of that is the planning system. I mean, we haven't talked at all about the elasticity of supply, which I, I first tried to measure in my PhD and fundamentally failed and still being quoted 30 years later because nobody else had managed to do it either. But our supply elasticity has been relatively very low, and there are all sorts of different reasons for that, uh, from the planning system through the makeup of the development industry, through what happens in the finance sector, through government policy, which is not necessarily very conducive to building if you've got macroeconomics which goes up and down like a yo-yo. So Christine, you talk in the book about how, you know, income have grown at a faster rate than housing stock. Is that not some of the demand side factors that have led to the high house prices that we see today that have been exacerbated by, as you quite rightly point out, had low supply and Rubens alluded to that as to why, um, as a result of this low responsiveness of supply mm. to these demand yeah. side drivers. Can you talk a bit more about the interaction between income and housing stock? The issue which we, we raise, which I have to say that we've raised uh, in work done in the 70s and 80s is that the price elasticity of demand is very much lower than the income elasticity of demand. So if you, you know, if incomes rise, let's, let's go back to a world where incomes rise and we want to buy more housing, that will because our supply elasticity is limited, will push up prices, but our response to that price increase is not so great. So you have to push up prices four times to get rid of one times income that you're trying to spend. It sounds like we've got worst of both worlds there. We've got very yes. responsive demand, but our supply is so constrained. In my mind, as a developer, working in land acquisition and, you know, got you know at the moment i'm managing over a billion pounds of a pipeline the planning reforms that are coming in are obviously predominantly aimed at improving the supply side elasticity and and it does need to change you look at the international norms other markets are much better ruben what, what's your thoughts so i mean do we need to move on to talking about low interest rates before we get stuck into some of the reforms that are needed well yeah i mean it's it's all the same discussion isn't it we as price now and just generally being interested housing people, we, we spend a lot of our time on Twitter. It's probably a mistake to think that that's uh, the, the extent of the, the housing discussion going on. But to the you extent to that it is... That I have never been yeah. on Twitter and I don't know what happens on Twitter. Well, you'd hate it because it has absolutely none of the nuance of your book. There are, there are people who um, 
say that supply and demand does not cause house prices at all because of interest oh. rates without with while totally disregarding the fact that interest rates are obviously a, one of the many functions of demand um, and there are a lot of people who think that it's one way or the other you're either a supply side person who wants to reform planning and that's it or you're a kind of monetarist person who thinks it's all caused by interest rates when the answer is obviously that it's both yeah the answer is obviously that it's both but we also have governments and it's not just this current one but you know labor governments going back as well who believe that policy is all about supply or at some stages, all about demand. But the inconsistency between the sorts of policies which are trying desperately to push up uh, owner occupation by reducing interest rates, guaranteeing them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is, you know, unless you've got the adjustment in the supply which happens, you do not get the outcome which you're looking for. So, I think our desperate message on the last page of our book is uh, please go back to thinking about the two together rather than one at a time. Absolutely. So what, what is the role, Christine, of, of monetary policy and its effect on housing demand? Oh, I mean, I think this, this argument, which, you know, is, is almost as bad as what you're talking about there, which is fundamentally that uh, if you're on one side, if you're a macroeconomist, it's the housing people who are causing all the problems for us, apart from all the other international pressures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if you're a housing person, it's macroeconomics, which keeps uh, stopping demand, starting demand, modifying interest rates, and therefore the, the value of assets, et cetera, without any thought to housing. And I think one of the things which depressed me most in terms of select committee is that over the years, over the last five years, we've had the, the deputy, one or other deputy governor of the Bank of England in, in front of us. And they haven't put it in this precise terms, but it comes down to, we do what is necessary and F you for the housing people. So. I, I'm on the housing side in this. I think it's for macroeconomists who, and of course, they've got to make trade-offs, and sometimes those trade-offs will be against housing. But beyond the, the lack of acceptance that they need to look at that feedback loop and, and therefore look at the overall costs and benefits is just simply not there. Here, here, yeah. Also flying the flag for the housing people. So obviously we need to accept that low interest rates um, and the availability of mortgages and other demand side stuff, like for example, more women entering the workforce uh, even uh, has had an enormous effect on house prices. There's also the issue of kind of buy-to-let investments or foreign in investment in, in uh, new build homes. There, there's, there's, I think there's some misconceptions flying around about what elements of that are demand and which aren't. Chris, I had a really interesting discussion with you on Twitter the other week. What, what are your views on what elements of investment inflate demand and which don't? That's a good question. I mean, so my role as an investment finance manager previously at a large build-to-rent developer, you know, you got to look from the macro perspective that if gilts are at 20 basis points or have a, a low they are now and yields on residential property are between three and a half, four percent, 
Yeah. Very attractive. Very consistent, very attractive. You know, and it's predictable. Now, a lot of the institutional investment investors that I've been working for, they need scale, right? Yeah. Um, you know, they, they haven't been in this business for, for that long. I mean, in America and other places, it's, it's you know, more abundant. But over here, you know, if you want to get 200 units, 300 units, 400 units in, in the current planning system, it's, it, it, it's very difficult. But that investment characteristic um, takes into account, you know, all of the arguments Christine makes, all of the points that Ruben and, and Anya have make it priced out about, you know, supply is, is a factor. And the underlying thesis when it comes down to economics is supply and demand. You cannot argue that it's one or the other. Um, and, and the thing is, when you do, some of those who do put a stand out say, we do need to take notice of supply and, and the planning system. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Labour voter and I've always been a Labour voter. Some of us on, in, in, in that camp, some of the, the, the narrative that was coming out was that, oh, planning is a discredited theory. It's nothing to do with supply. There's no shortage. And it really did, you know, worry. The, the extent to which they, people have got onto the there is no real absolute shortage is is scary. It's scary at a level because many of the arguments are pretty irrational in this context. But it is, of course, the case. And, I, and people find this very, very difficult. I mean, Jeff Mean was involved in doing both the, the basic um, treasury model for, for housing and also the model of affordability to which the MHCLG uses. Now, if you follow that through and you look at what a new build home does, a new build home ultimately leads in 40% of cases to a vacant home. But it's part of the dynamics of the system. And we have one of the lowest vacancy rates in the world. And the result of a very low rate, vacancy rate is if you get sudden changes in demand, you've got no mechanisms for dealing with it. So, you know, Jeff used to stand there in front of planners saying, you know, it goes like this. It goes in here and it comes down here and it does this, etc. And And some of them fall out the bottom. And, and the planners <laughs> say, well, you don't build then, do you? <laughs> Which point you give in? Ruben, you know, priced out of quite rightly, you know, harangued the expansion of the buy-to-let market. To what extent has that had detrimental effects on potential first-time buyers, do you think? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Spiced Out spent much of its early years with this as its main thing, and it, I'm delighted to say that government has slowly been listening, not just to us, but to other people too. It's had a huge effect, but sometimes I think it's a bit more nuanced than nuanced people think, because it pushes up prices because buy-to-let investors have historically at least had a much easier time getting mortgages at better rates so they can pay more. But what it does not do is if you if you have a first-time buyer and a buy-to-let investor competing for the, for the same home. Which you don't very often. Well, okay, but uh, let, let, let's reduce the world to a, to a thought experiment. Okay, fine. Um, you've, got, you've got the two competing for the same home and let's, there's no other homes, there's, there's no other people in the economy. The first-time buyer is going to live in it either way. So demand for the home is not double what it was. Uh, it's not that there are two people competing for the home. That's not the dis demand mismatch. The, the mismatch is the ability by to let investor to pay more. Do you agree with that, Christine? You know, it is a difficult one, and I, I, I accept that somebody is going to live in it. The question is whether it's the same people who are going to live in it or 
because household formation changes, all sorts of other things change at the same time as, as these things happen. What I think has been the, the biggest issue from a point of view of a first-time bar has been that uh, since the financial crisis, uh, not only have we had a, you know, some certain constraints on, on mortgages, which actually don't relate to the risk involved, they relate to the treasury management of the organisations that provide the, the mortgages, not to the individuals. Um, which have excluded a lot of people from, from being able to get a mortgage. But of course, if they had got a mortgage, then we'd probably have higher prices because both sides would be pushing it up. So it's, it's not a straightforward one. I think one of the issues where I've, you know, I, I know that I'm, I would, on Twitter I'd be taken apart, um, is about international buyers. Uh, it does very much depend upon what the macro economy is like as to whether international buyers are a good thing. But I'm cer it's certainly the case that uh, in, in the period from sort of 2010 to 2015, if we hadn't had international buyers, they would not have been able, developers would not have been developing at the rates that they did, certainly yeah. in the Southeast. And to be fair, to take Ruben's point another way around, if a Singaporean buys a, a uh, home, this is in the owner-occupied right, uh, buy-to-let-type market, then it goes on the market and it is occupied by private tenants and they are occupying it at a higher density than the owner-occupier would be. So, yep. you know, they are in fact, they did provide a lot of housing which wouldn't otherwise have happened for for Londoners with an, with additionality. There are all yeah. sorts of other costs involved, but that's straightforward. No, line. I mean, Christine, you are so right on two counts. One is the, your your actual argument, and the other is that you would be taken apart on Twitter because um, <laughs> because yeah. said, because I've said the same thing before, um, <laughs> and I have been taken apart on Twitter. There's such a perception that uh, in, international investment is a universally bad thing, when because exactly for the reason you say. It's only as bad in terms of depriving first-time buyers of home ownership. It's only as bad as buy-to-let, but it also yeah. does something that buy-to-let doesn't do, which is actually get the home built in the first place. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. it's, it's especially as most of those uh, Asian buyers do want new built. Um, I mean, I'm, coming from my perspective, I'm trying to match my pricing for the market that can be afforded. Now, if all of a sudden somebody who's buying land for a development that has an international sales model. You're likely going to be putting 10 15 on your sales prices so they then buy the land and now that those prices then get baked in to the expectations and move the market on my, my personal opinion i'm not here to talk down the international sales market whether or not we we allow demand from some of the most wealthiest people in the you know around the world to buy in the places that you know will help make our economy better particularly in you know in london and our and our, and our cities but it, it does raise the question whether you know, the, not just the expansion of buy-to-let mortgages for domestic buyers, but also international, is beneficial to, for people, for first-time buyers. And if it does push pricing on, it is helping push them out of reach. And to your point earlier on in the conversation, Christine, where we're seeing the, the, the distribution, those people who are, who are in those top wealth brackets pushing it out further, that, I think it does add, add to that, in my opinion. But, but to be really nasty in that context... I think that housing, housing associations and Homes England have probably done more to push up prices in land than international buyers have. That's a fair point. Yeah. Yes, well, and it's also, it may be a function of um, 
uh, or incompetence. Maybe, or well, no, <laughs> or it it could very well be a function of grant rates, right? Because they because that's yeah. If, yeah. if we if we model the housing economy as as money chasing after homes, then obviously more grants for social housing is a good thing. Uh, but it one of the uh, it's a net good thing. But obviously one of the effects is that land prices will go up slightly. Yeah. Yeah, the land prices are going up because the, the the next developer to you, you know, baking in higher expectations, and then you know the local demand can can achieve. What's happening at the moment, though? As we know, we have an impending demand shock with regards to the job market. When the furlough scheme peels off, I think we're going to see craters here in certain industries that will obviously have a, a significant demand side effect. I think there was a, a today or, or, or about the interest rates for first-time buyers in the 95% LTV range, you know, spiking up now, and there's going to be starting to have a bit of a, a credit crunch. Whether or not, you know, we look at that, there was some good research done by a Dutch university looking at housing markets in a pandemic. I think the ranges are between 8 to 15% drop, which is probably going to take a few years to recover starting in the beginning of next year. That's my personal take. However, in, in the long run, we know that the supply and demand imbalances are are there for a, a speedy rebound. And that's part of the volatility that we expect to come in the market. Yeah, and so, it may be that it won't be quite as volatile as we're, we're suggesting that's, that's in that context. But I do think you should have a word with our Prime Minister who wants to put a guarantee on 95% mortgages. Oh, oh, we, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I would, I, I, at the moment, I would, sorry, I wouldn't do that because I don't know, think it's fair on people to find themselves in, in very significant negative equity, which they can't get out of. Thought out recently by the Resolution Foundation called Underwater and explores, you know, the, the potential of negative equity and with the impact of coronavirus. And what they're finding in that report was that you know younger families. You know, particularly in, in my generation, who's getting the double whammy of coming out into the job market in the last recession and then getting hit here, um, that that they're a bit more up the income stream, a little bit wealthier. But that doesn't negate from the fact that, like you say, there could be a catching a falling knife if you're coming off a fixed rate two year help to buy scheme and, you know, your interest rate doubling from 2% to 4%. And I think there was a household debt analysis from the House of Commons the other day saying that the standard variable rate since 2009 hasn't really changed. Well, no, it hasn't changed much, no. And, and uh, one, of the, one of the core problems at the moment is almost no market is working anything like where you would expect it to be working. And uh, so you're not getting an understanding of how to respond to it. And I think that's true, you know, the rental market fundamentally at the moment is without a legal framework. I mean, okay. nearly everybody is, uh, you, you can't go to law, you can't actually do any of the normal things you would do to do adjustments. So you're just doing it as if it were an informal market. Yeah, yeah, agrees. So the other thing we really wanted to talk about today, which we talk about a lot in the Priced Out Manifesto, it's one of our kind of big strands, is the way housing is taxed. Yeah, uh, and I, uh, you talk about this a bit in your book. Right now, we have a system where stamp duty—well, right, not right now—but in normal times, stamp duty is paid. You know, it's levied on the buyer, but we we all know that it's really um, split. But the proportions might be yeah. a little bit uneven. Yeah, uh, but it but it certainly has the effect of making selling and buying homes both less attractive. Yeah. Um, and then we have a system of council tax that where some of the most expensive homes in the country are taxed at less than 0.1% of their value each year. And, and uh, whereas other 
uh, others are taxed at about 2% of their value each year, which is disastrously regressive. How would you reform tax? Does it need a total overhaul? Well, we've been trying to reform it since I first started writing about housing, which is, I think if you add your two birthdays together, it's probably before that. <laughs> but let's not try that. The reality is that we now tax housing as a consumption good, while it is an investment good. So if you want to get the supply side of behavior a bit better, it would be better if it, were if it was free. But now we're even moving to a situation where buy-to-let is a consumption good, as <laughs> well as everything else. But I think both of the taxes which you've pointed out are very problematic. On the other hand, stamp duty raises an awful lot of money, and it's probably almost the oldest tax that we put on anything in the 1700s. Putting a, you know, a stamp can be seen and you therefore can tax it. Mm. One would like to see it change, but I think that the changes that they made over the last five years are actually being quite positive. It does mean that they're much higher up the top end, which is not really yeah. the interesting and, question. And much higher for investors, which is obviously... So I'm not desperately worried about... Uh, uh, the, I'm not as worried about stamp duty as many other people are. Desperately well, worried about council tax. And, you know... I, I have this conversation with Tony Travers all the time, but surely we have to push for a proper, uh, addressing that in some proper manner. But it is, it's just off limits for the Conservative Party to an extent which I just cannot believe. But I live in a house which we moved into 30 years ago. And three years ago, we were paying £100 a year more than we paid on the day we moved in. Now, since then, we've had presets put on, which are not the right answer, but at least there's something. So I am now paying, I think, maybe £300 more, £300 more. Value of my house has gone up, well, we won't go into that, but quite a lot. Mm. So there's, there's an excellent campaign by um, Fairer Share, which priced out uh, contributed to quite a lot, which says roll stamp duty and council tax into one continuous property tax levied on owners. Um, and I'm not sure whether that's freeholders or leaseholders. That's a really tricky one. Yeah, so, so there, are, they... there are a lot of problems about the owner story. Mm, yeah, but, uh, but, but I think, definitely... you know, you're doing something which you're, you want a simple story. So mm. I'm not going uh, to I mean, about that. Certainly not tenants anyway. So, so, well, of course, it yeah. doesn't matter where it's levied, as you've said in other contexts. Well, well, that that depends on your assumptions and uh, uh, hey, about yeah. the economy and yeah. and the and the realities. But well, I think the um, IFS report, which came out sort of at the beginning of lockdown, uh, which does do an awful lot of the sort of detailed work with it. But at the moment, to be honest, if I had to do anything, I would change for um, the the welfare side of council tax, which is appalling oh yeah 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 i know it's been put on hold at the moment but i mean it is just appalling the way that that has been treated and and it's more likely to get people evicted than the landlord yes yeah yeah it's it's horrible council tax is just a disastrous system in so many but ways. i think the, you know if you go back a few years it wasn't those taxes that we were worrying we were worrying about council tax but not specifically the housing thing but the question of whether we should have inheritance tax whether for primary homes, whether we should have uh, capital gains tax, whether we... Yes. Now, 
a lot of people, and there has been quite a lot of pressure over the last three or four months towards um, capital gains tax for primary homes. Um, we've done as part of something which we will manage, one of the things I still haven't got out from this month um, is a comparison across 21 countries. And of those 21 countries, only one, two, have a functional, technically functional capital gains tax. One of them is the United States. Um, and it's a very good way of giving people money at the top end of the market. Basically, you pay capital gains tax, but you don't pay it when you remove house when you're retiring. And you can roll it over anyway. And you roll it over, it goes into inheritance tax and therefore it disappears because inheritance tax for reasons which I do not understand is the most unpopular tax across populations that are never going to pay it. Yes, that's that's a very interesting one. We um, inheritance tax is not something that we've talked about a lot um, at Priced Out, although obviously it has a housing dimension quite prominently. On capital gains tax, the problem with saying that rather than just taxing the value of your home, which is the fairer share idea, um, or, or even going further than that and doing a, some kind of land value tax, even though it would be really, really nice to tax primary residences, I think the political achievability of capturing existing capital gains because house prices in, in, over the last few decades is where the trillions of pounds of, sure. um, of, of, yeah. of where that is it is. And if we could get that, then capital gains tax on primary residences would be the number one priced out manifesto um, uh, policy. But I, I think but that's, I do so, that's so far away. But... think it won't work. I mean, I mean, other countries have tried it and it's either sort of disappeared into almost nothing or it's or it's been reversed. Is um, that because politically it, is, it won't work or is that because economically it won't work? I think it's mainly politically, yeah. but uh, I think, to be honest, I'd rather, I think, apart from anything else, you can make it look smaller. I just think you ought to be paying a wealth tax. So, Christine, in the book, you look at... It, it discusses how stamp duty is believed to reduce mobility and is a contributing yeah. factor in the unwillingness of older households to move down. I think you've alluded to that um, being uh, alleviated in that, that, that American system that does actually provide more tax relief to, to wealthier households and how council tax is considered a regressive because of the sort of limited number of tax bans and you know the arguments that have been put forward for it, as we've been discussing, are the proportional to the property um, or there's also discussions around land value tax. I mean, just from my personal uh, perspective, my service charge is a lot higher than, say, the wealthiest top tax bracket in Kensington and Chelsea for, for a mansion. What is your thoughts on, on say, land value tax within this debate? Because some people suggest that it, it should replace all taxes. But I think there's a Bath University study that shows places like Tower Hamlets, where I live, probably would actually be in receipt of fewer funds as a result. Yes, I think that's quite likely the case. In a sense, we're always arguing well, what will bring in money in the short term and rather than what, what overall principles ought to be. I think that the, the principle that you tax as widely as possible and try to use the money as efficiently as possible rather than just pushing it up where you can is, is to be desired, but I don't think it's very likely. But I do have no problems about either making council tax properly progressive or having a land 
it can be a housing tax, but I would rather it was a wealth tax, but wealth taxes have problems about valuation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But, uh, again, that's exactly how we manage it. Yeah. Well, just a quick one. What, what, what do you think about, I think Christine Hilber um, has mooted the idea of what he's seen in, in places like Switzerland, where, you know, local authorities, actually, there is an element of local income tax, and that in, actually incentivizes, you know, aligns interests, if you like, with regards to um, encouraging new development. What are your thoughts on that? As in the income tax that you pay from employment? Yeah, but it's yeah. a local one. I, I, think, I think in general, more taxes collected locally um, are a good thing. Paul Cheshire has talked about this a lot, but the incentives are just so skewed right now with what local authorities are incentivized, incentivized to, to let to be built. Um, I think, I don't know about income tax, I'm agnostic about, about that side of it. I think that if we rolled stamp duty um, and uh, other property taxes into a local rate, because stamp duty is, as Christine said, it earns so much money, that by itself would, would go some way towards kind of skewing those incentives in the right way. And, and Christine, what are your thoughts? If, if, say, councils had the ability to have an element of, local, of income tax that they could incentivise people to move to their area, would that not incentivise new development? And is that progressive? I think the honest answer is probably not of itself, just because the complexities of the tax system don't necessarily provide the incentives, which it looks as though it should. You know, Christian is a Swiss. He knows how the Swiss system works and nobody else does. So that's, that's a little unfair. One of the things about the Swiss system is that you can only move house four times a year. What? How you can only move house on quarter day. Oh, wow. <laughs> of course you move on other days, but technically you can only move on quarter day. <laughs> which, is, which, has, which is nicely bizarre. I genuinely have issues around the whole taxation of property. As you know, I'm sure, the OECD figures show us as having the second highest property taxes in the world. In the OECD world, sorry, and OECD countries. And that is because of the national taxes and it's because of the, the way that we frame certain taxes. But they're not doing the job that a property tax ought to be doing. But the reality is that there's a lot of money going through that system. And of course, you know, to have a local government system which doesn't have a proper source of income is, yeah. is massively important. It's mad. And, and if you subscribe to Price Stout's view that house prices need to stop rising, well, increasing housing taxes progressively on the areas where um, house prices are highest uh, and therefore probably cutting them in the vast majority of the country will also have the effect of pricing it into house prices, which is another good thing, as well as the revenue collection. But then, of course, you have to go all the way back through the whole equalisation process and so on. You know, most of the incentives which you think will come to local authorities at the moment, yes, got rid of by the equalisation process. And just one last thing, Christine, I don't know to what extent you've experienced or, or looked into this much, but in America, they have something called the low income housing tax credit. And yes, which, indeed. <laughs> which they have a tradable tax credit where they sell tax relief in exchange for equity or subsidy, if you like. And the private sector are actually over there delivering, you know, homes for low income on rents, you know, using your residual income approach. What, you know, so they don't pay more than 30 percent of their uh, wages. And yeah, that's quite the income. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I stand corrected. <laughs> so, what, yeah. what, what's your thoughts on that? And on that, that uh, well, it, it's it's worked in some ways well in America. It's produced non-mixed 
development. The developments are all affordable housing or they're all not affordable housing in the main. And it's it's got quite a lot of other distortionary aspects, but it, it's, it's been, well, of course, it's port barrel, port barrel as well, in the sense that the money comes from government, central government, and it goes to the state, and the state puts it where they're feeling like it. So there's lots of things wrong with it, but it has produced significant housing, mostly in not terribly good places, which is what you'd expect. But one of us, relatively few things which I do approve of in the British system is we have had managed to maintain some forms of mix, although in a rather odd way now. But, you know, I live in Islington, have done for 30 years. It, I would not be living in Islington and enjoying it if it wasn't a mixed system. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I'm I think that's all that uh, uh, the low-income tax credit tends to assist the development of ghettos which are anywhere going to be there so i think yeah i think one of the one of the the good um strengths of our system is definitely that it's produced mixed communities um so we're probably coming out of time i think this has been a really fantastic episode um the, the discussion about what i say on twitter a lot which is yes and not no but when people are discussing uh, what causes <laughs> the housing crisis i think is good to have you on side uh, even if you're not on twitter Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. We've covered a lot of ground here. You know, the discussions between supply versus demand is in fact both. We've looked at the housing demand and financial markets and looked at how we reform property taxation as well as putting the world to rights, whether it is a an investment taxation or consumption taxation. But I was about to say that I didn't think we had managed to put the world to rights, but, yeah. but we tried. <laughs> yeah, we tried. We tried. And and at Price Dow, I think you guys um, you know, particularly Anya and, and, and Ruben are, you know, at the very much forefront of a lot of those discussions and having you on the podcast today has been fantastic. So thank you. Next episode, we will be joined by Dr. Stanley Milchaver of University College London, looking at affordable housing and where I'll be joined by my co-host Anya Martin in early December. So look forward to seeing you guys. Thanks a lot. And don't forget to tweet, hashtag Priced Out Podcast. Ciao. <laughs>